Hello, this is the Lunar Poetry Podcast, I'm David Turner. This episode was recorded in Bristol and is an exploration of the spoken word scene in and around Bristol and Bath in the southwest of England. It takes the form of a roundtable discussion hosted by me and I'm joined by local poet Rebecca Tantoni, poet and lecturer at Bath Spa University, Lucy English, and founder of the publisher Burning Eye Books, Clive Burney. Coming up, there's lots of interesting chat about how spoken word in Bristol and Bath compares to the rest of the UK, as well as readings from my guests. This episode was produced with the Arts Council England funding I received this summer, so a big thank you to them for making it possible for us to travel down and to Bristol and record this conversation. The conversation took place at a venue in central Bristol called Paper Arts, and Paper Arts is a not-for-profit social enterprise committed to providing employment opportunities to young people to help them gain the skills, knowledge and experience to follow a career in the creative industries. And I really recommend you visit them if you're in Bristol. They've got a great little shop and a cafe and a fantastic and reasonably priced room you can hire for workshops and or podcast recordings. Finally, as always, you can follow everything we're up to at Lunar Poetry Podcast on SoundCloud, Facebook and Tumblr or Silent underscore Tongue on Twitter. And all of our content is available for free on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like what we put out, then please do tell people about us because word of mouth is definitely our most effective marketing tool. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, this is the Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is David Turner, and today I'm in Bristol in the southwest of England. I am at a place called Paper Arts, and I will plug it before anything else starts because it's wonderful. It's a, um, basically a community youth centre and a not for profit. Everything that happens here, all the workshops that run, all the money is put back into all the great stuff they do here. I didn't make any proper notes. I will tell you all about it another time. (laughs) (coughs) My guests are going to introduce themselves. We'll start over here, please. Hi, I'm Lucy English. I'm reader in creative writing at Bath Spa University. Nobody knows what a reader is. It's a sort of, it's a senior lecturer. Um, at Boston University where I teach spoken word and performance poetry. I'm also a spoken word poet myself um, and started performing way back in the mid-90s. Hello, my name is Rebecca Tantoni. Um, I'm a writer based in Bristol, primarily a spoken word artist, but I also write page poetry and flash non-fiction. And I'm very happy to be here. I'm Clive Burney. I am... I run this um, little poetry press called Burning Eye, which uh, focuses on spoken word poetry. Um, and I'm honoured to say that I published both Lucy and Rebecca. Uh, this is, yeah, it's always the way when you get any number of art, uh, poets before. Like, so I only met Lucy and Rebecca this morning. I've met Clive at the Poetry Book Fair in London before. but. Yeah, you can choose any three poets in Britain and they'll be in some way connected, such as publishing them or mentoring them, which we'll come on to later. But, um, so I don't know Bristol that well, only sort of socially. My sister used to live here and got married here, and stuff, but I don't know what happens with the poetry. So if I just, I was going to start with my impression of the, the place is that it's got this long history of tradition of spoken word, or sort of in the, most recently. Is that a... A fair representation, a fair thought, and or and B, does it sort of undervalue what else is happening here? I think there is a a, a more diverse poetry scene 
in in Bristol than um, just spoken word, you know. And I think it's a it's more more of a crossover as well. I think there are, there are you know a lot of poets working in Bristol who step in and out or on and off the stage. So um, you know. We've just had the Bristol Poetry Festival happening here, and, and although one of the big events is always the Poetry Slam, actually there's 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 you know half a dozen other really solidly attended events that aren't spoken word readings at all. So I think, and, it, and it's, it's a long-established and successful poetry festival. So I think that that speaks to that there is a wider poetry community here in Bristol. Although it does have, as always had, I think since since your um, you know, first era back in the 90s, Lucy, there's always been a very strong spoken word scene. I think what's really interesting about the Bristol spoken word scene is that it's constantly reinventing itself. Um, I mean, I was part of a very, very lively scene back in the sort of mid to late 90s, and um, the sort of spirit of that survives, but not necessarily the people that were involved in it. I mean, it seems to be a scene that's constantly picking up um, sort of new voices and new representations and I, th I actually find that quite exciting rather than it's a scene that's crystallised and has been there intact since since the 90s. It seems like there's new spoken word nights um, sort of popping up every month re really, you know, with, with, um, with a different group of people that, 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 that go there. Yeah, and um, I feel like there's a lot of cross-collaboration with art forms in Bristol. I think there's a lot of merging of different types of literature with other types of art forms of music and dance and film, which I think is really exciting. Um, Actually, that was going to be my next question, because my main uh, idea of, of the creative scene in Bristol is linked to music from the mid to late 90s and onwards, and the influence that that's had. But I'm just wondering how much that is the main influence and how much it comes down to the theatre tradition in the city as well. Yeah, I think all of those art forms are really vibrant here in their own right and independently. But as I said, I think there is also a lot of crossover. So there's a lot of, we've just worked on a show together, Lucy and I, she's the producer and I'm the writer and performer, which merges theatre and spoken word together and we're working with a dance director as well and a designer who comes from a very kind of art background has you know, exhibited her work in MoMA in, in America. And so already with that example, there's four different mediums there that are combining. And I think that's a particular feature of Bristol that you can create collaborative projects that are very crossover, yeah. that, um, that, that, that may contain music, may contain performance, may contain dance. And, and there's something about the, the spirit of Bristol that actually sort of um, welcomes those, those type of ventures. Um, I think that's really exciting, actually. Yeah. I really and I think it's a lovely scene. Like, I really remember an ex-boyfriend of mine saying to me, he, was an art, he is an artist, and him just saying, I can't believe how supportive all you poets are of each other. There's just constant, you know, you get offered a job and you can't do it, you instantly send it to a friend who's a poet, and everyone kind of says each other's words. When you're performing on stage, you can see, like, Sally always does it. I can see her mouth, Sally Jenkinson, mouthing my poems back to me. And it's just a really nice kind of supportive and, um, yeah, great atmosphere, I think, that goes along with the, the world of poetry in Bristol.
I think there's something about Bristol in that as well. I mean, there's the character of Bristol, which is, which is, you know, we call it the People's Republic of Bristol. I and mean, Bristol does have its own character, even though you can tell from mine and Lucy's accents that, that we weren't necessarily born here. I don't know where you, you originate from. I was born in Kent, in, in Kent. Margate. Yeah, so we're, we're all incomers, really. Although, you know, I've been here for nearly 30 years mm. and you've been here for over 20 years, haven't you? So. I've been here you know, for, yeah, 30 something. Yeah. 31 years. 31 years, there you yeah. go. So, you know, yeah. Bristol does that to people. You yeah. come here and, you know, you fall in love with the place and stick to it because it, and it, it, it just has a vibrant culture. And, it, and as you said, it's not just, I think, the poetry and spoken word scene that reinvents itself. Just culturally, I think Bristol is the kind of place that keeps reinventing itself. Yeah. Um, and in a good way, in a good way, yeah. you know? I, I've often seen, um, I don't know whether this is relevant to anyone around the table, but I, um, when I, I visited Lyon in the southeast of France, and it's got a similar feeling that you've got a lot. There's a lot of artists living down there. They've made a decision not to live in the capital. You know, they've removed, and it's not because they've completely dismissed what's happening there, but they've, they've just found a place. This links back to one of one of the reasons that I was first so attracted to reading regularly spoken word nights, because my background is within galleries and fine art and stuff, and people will step on your neck to get in front of you. Yeah. And in general, it does exist a little bit with poets as well, but they just they perhaps won't do it to your face. But, <laughs> <laughs> but in general, the spoken word scene and the poetry scene, you're right. If, the, if someone turns down a job, they, they won't say no to a job. There'll be a list of names of people that they feel are, are capable of filling that gap. And um, there is a real community. I think it's delightfully uncompetitive in Bristol that although there are different, um, there's various different uh, sort of spoken word nights, mm. they're not, they haven't got that fierce competition against e each other. There is a feeling of collaboration that I've never felt anybody stepping on my neck in Bristol at all. And I, I wouldn't even think of stepping on someone else's neck. And, and, and I think that th thing about the older, you know, the people who have been, been around doing spoken word for longer, like me, I feel completely comfortable with saying to Rebecca, look, here's a gig or a workshop I can't do. Mm. Would you like to do it? That, mm. you know, I don't feel I need to own everything. And I, th I, I, think, that that's, I think that that's actually quite a vital part of the Bristol scene. There is that I handing agree. down yeah. of skills. And I, it's funny, some, um, I think it was Malaika actually, um, poet in Bristol said to me recently, oh yeah, and you're the generation before us. And it, I kind of stopped yeah. in my tracks. I'm so used to being like this new generation of poets, me and Sally and Vanessa. And actually, you know, she was right. There is this kind of new wave of poets yeah. that are 18, 19, that have just come out of university or just going into university. Mm. And, and similar to what you mm. just said, Lucy, there is definitely a kind of, yeah, there's a handing down of work mm. or a promoting of, of those new voices and it kind of goes hand in hand with the job of being a poet I think as being in support of those who are beginning and that feels good. But that's very much part of Bristol I mean you can go and see a band in, in Bristol and in the audience will be a 17 year old, a 47 year old and a 77 yeah. year old yeah. all enjoying the, the music I mean yeah. I just wonder if there's many other cities in the UK where, 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 where you would have that. Yeah I don't know I've been here so long now but you know, I'm conscious that um, I've gone from being, over my time in Bristol, one of the young people in the audience to one of the older people in the audience. <laughs> and it's, when you suddenly wake up and realise it, it's a bit of a cold yeah. shock. I mean, I'm that old bloke in the Sonic yeah. T-shirt I used to see at gigs. Yeah, oh, no. the one dancing oh, no. and the going back. Yeah. You slide gently over to the bar and prop yourself up and think, I'll oh, shut up now. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I came to poetry 
in my early 30s so immediately felt like I was the guy at the back with the Newcastle Brown Ale bottle um, <laughs> and it's quite strange because my, my, the people I would consider my peers because of like people that are starting out at the same time are often 15 years younger than me mm. um, but it's not but yeah. It, you, you don't recognise any of those things that are reading, do you? Because it is m much more, even in London, which I would say is an ultra competitive city in all art forms, usually, even even in, in that city, it's quite uncompetitive. But um, I was just wondering, because I, I, I strongly believe that as well, Lucy, that, that it's remarkably uncompetitive. But as we were talking before, uh, the recording about the new nationwide adverts, which are, for anyone that doesn't know, they've chosen free, is it free in total? Spoken I think so, I've seen three. Yeah. Seen they're three. doing um, more. They're going to do more, aren't they? But, so, but it's, obviously there's going to be um, spoken word poetry shown in the middle of X Factor and getting a profile, it's going to raise the profile. So I suppose my point is, is there a danger that that, can, that lack of competitiveness will change? And once, I'm just worried that if, Ultimately, if more money becomes available, that's mm. when... I think what's quite interesting about the Nationwide Project, I'm only saying this because I was asked to write um, a poem, for, which wasn't actually taken forward, but it was part of the ones that, were, that was considered. The brief was, write very much what you want to write, not, hey, Nationwide's great! You know, it, it was, I, I thought that was quite an interesting way of using um, spoken word. It was actually more about focusing on, on the poet rather than it as a sort of product placement. Mm. And I, I thought, well, good on you nationwide for actually choosing that route. I don't know how successful it's going to be as, as um, sort of fostering nationwide, but, but, I, but certainly the poems I've seen connected with that particular yeah. advertisement, I've thought, well, actually, those poets have gone away and written sort of some damn fine poems. Actually, yeah, we were talking last night with um, Lizzie, my girlfriend's mum, and she said she really likes the adverts, but sort of forgets that they're for nationwide. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's quite a nice thing because people take the poetry away from it rather than... Yeah. Yeah. I it's think it's been handled in that way though, isn't it? Where it's almost like, you know, here it is, I'll, you know, this poem was brought to you by Nationwide, thank you very much. And I think, I think that's, that kind of works, you know. I think um, uh, there have been other examples of, of where poetry has been used in advertising, which is, hasn't worked quite so well, but I think they've been quite deftly handled. And I think, you know, um, as Holly McNish had said about it as well, is that, you know, she gets asked to do a lot you know, commercially, she gets asked and turns it most of it down because she thinks carefully about what organisations and because it's a mutual, mm. you know, um, so a slightly different and um, in its corporate structure, she she felt more comfortable working with them. Mm. Um, you know, and I think you know, giving exposure to other 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 people like, you know, you know Matt Abbott, I think you know, who's probably not that well known outside of his his sort of. Home territory. Out Actually, north. since you mentioned his name, I, I just wanted to. Plug, so he's got a record label called Nymphs and Thugs, and you should definitely check them out. Uh, they recently was it last week released Sterling the Goddens um, spoken word al yeah. album. Definitely check out Nymphs and Thugs. Well, I, I have to say that, that you know Selena's album does come with a bit of a warning because you know I, I was laughing so hard listening it into the car that, that I, <laughs> I drifted across lanes on the motorway, and nearly caused quite a serious incident. So be warned, it is very very funny. Poetry will yeah. cause death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> but rather than questioning nationwide's motives, I've, what I was really trying to get to is if... Poetry, well, we start cutting each other's throats yeah, to get the gig. If poetry's seen as a way of getting on television, yeah. that's sort of... Because that's perhaps what it, the, the way the profile may change. Is it may seem to be a way of getting onto television. I think that will always boil down to the, um, the desire of the artists, you know, if, if they 
lots of poets, myself included, that isn't a motivation. So I think there is always a multitude of avenues to offer poetry out. For example, I'm going to come back to my show again. But, you know, in development of that particular show, the idea that poetry has suddenly become so much more popular, it's being offered to mass audiences, and I was sort of questioning that intimacy of poetry when you go and see a performer live and there's not many people in a crowd, like, is that getting lost? So therefore we've developed a show that's delivered to one or two audience members at a time. I think there's always, there's, there's a multitude of avenues, as I said, that artists can go down to kind of make whatever's happening in the current climate suitable to them as artists. So I don't, I don't think we'll be, I don't think we'll be no, cutting for me each as well, What you're doing to... with your show is a really great example. One of the things that, that I'm really interested in, in, in how spoken word poetry is evolving and developing. So I mentioned earlier I'd seen Cecilia Knapp show at the Cheltenham Festival. You know, and it's like, so there's, there's quite young writers like Cecilia, like Rebecca, working in a longer form. Now that doesn't lend itself to a 30 second TV ad. No. You know, now to me in many kind of ways, it's interesting that, that they've gone for, for spoken word poets um, for those ads. And I've got a couple of thoughts on that, which I'll try not to take up too much time explaining. But one is that um, you could argue that, you know, more lyric, short form poetry, where, you know, in, in, in the other half of the poetry world, competitions and, uh, and submissions guidelines often say maximum 25 or 40 lines. So those short poems would lend themselves very well to 30 second TV ads. Um, but my other interesting thing about it, I think, and, and, and this is where I, I sometimes argue that spoken word poetry is is a movement it's a literary movement and no one recognizes yet in a hundred years time there'll be this thing called mm. yeah they'll have a name for it and i don't know what it'll be but it'll be recognized as something because there are characteristics about it that, that are why they've, they've come to it for tv ads and that it tends to be written about real life yeah. ordinary stuff you know the 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 ebb and flow of, of human experience you know that there, there aren't many spoken word poets out there talking about the rugged moors and the chaffinch mm. you know and um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, but those are bad things, you know, you'll find my bookshelf at home is full of that sort of poetry and I love it for good reason, you know, but, but what I love about the spoken word scene is it's people grappling with, you know, you know what's happening, as you said now, that we're talking about the, the Bristol Poetry Slam, somebody did a poem about, about Donald Trump and, and, and you know, um, his misogyny, which was obviously exploded all over the news this week, somebody comes to yeah. a slam at the weekend it's with a poem about it, it's immediate yeah. and topical, mm. but it's written also in, in plain language, in everyday English, in you know, in, in forms of words that people it's are familiar with hearing, and I think and that's why it works. Powerful, people yeah. like Holly McNish and Matt Abbott. Uh, and I can't think who the third third one is. I'm sure I've seen the third advert, and I can't think of it for the for, for the life of me. It was a young guy sat in a cafe, and I don't know his name. Now. I know the name of the cafe. Can somebody Google it while we're, while we're talking? But you I know, kind yeah. of yeah, I, I trust their their writing. I trust them as humans to kind of deliver something which is powerful and accessible, regardless of who's asked them to do it. And yeah, I, I think it's I don't think it's a bad thing at all. No, no. I would hate to see poet. I'd hate to see a sort of um, X Factor version. <laughs> Of, of, I mean, obviously, the difficulty with television it tends to favour the sort of young and attractive. And what and what what I find, and being an older person, what 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 I find lovely about the, the spoken word scene is is that it takes in a multitude of voices. That it isn't age restricted. That you've got spoken word poets who you know in their fifties and sixties and possibly even older. That you know it hasn't just
it's got that sort of cute face sort of thing mm-hmm. that, that sometimes happens with music. Mm-hmm. That I feel, uh, actually, one, I've just worked out how to say it without naming the person, so I, I can bring it up now. But um, one another reason that I was I had this slight worry is perhaps because in another in an email exchange that I was having with an agent, I obviously won't name, did ask me if I would would be able to recommend any poets to uh, audition for Britain's Got Talent, and it's when actually it's important for me to differentiate the point that I don't worry about the way that poets will behave it's the way the machine works in media and will people will people be swallowed up because it's very easy for agents to tell especially younger um, artists Mm. that this is the way that the industry is going and if you're not on board you're going to miss out somehow yeah Um, the dangerous thing about that is not so much well one it's possible to take advantage of people but another thing is it, it does split the scene you know the, mm. what exists now and the community that is around it with, mm. with money these things are always possible to split open you know um, yeah. I, I think spoken word is um, that has happened with spoken word before I mean uh, years back there's Murray Lachlan and Young who was given an awful lot of money mm-hmm. and, and was promoted and a TV of, show and a TV show yeah. and, 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 and everything and I won't like to say he bombed spectacularly but he certainly did not achieve what was expected yeah. of, of, of him and I think the spoken word scene is actually um, would be a very difficult thing to, to sort of wrap up um, you know, by the popular media, because I think it... it and I just think the popular media would, would go for the simplest thing they could find, so it would, it probably, it it would, it would yeah, end it would up being a bit paramazzy, yeah. but I don't yeah. think that would harm the scene, yeah. you see what I mean? Because, I mean, there's all, there, we've already got the few superstars, you know, it's like, you know, Kate Tempest is always held up as being, you know, the, the great example, but Kate's a very distinct artist in her own right, who does her very much her own thing. She's and very, she's, I mean, she's actually very, she develops her art form, doesn't she? Does, she? she does, In the and way that, not, that, she, that she wants, she's not being fed Not by, at all, not at all, and she's not, she's not sort of like just the most famous version of a hundred artists who are doing the yeah. same thing. It's like, no, she's, she's distinct, mm. you know, and isn't necessarily representative of the wider spoken word scene yeah. in many ways, you know. Sugar Jay, by the way, the other poet. There Sugar Jay poet. Nice bit of, uh, Sugar Jay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I felt wrong to talk about no, it. No, not, yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. not reference the guy because yeah. you know it's um, a it's a good film worth checking out. You know. I suppose as well within the mainstreams of anything, you have always got your your powerful voices that stand out. For example, I think Beyonce's like new album was phenomenal. I think Kendrick Lamar's a really interesting voice in the world of hip hop and. They stand out because of the language they're choosing to use. And therefore, I think that would also be happening if spoken word became even more popular. I think it would be those, those voices who were speaking of politics, empowerment, equality, etc., that would really stand out and represent the spoken word scene. And I don't know if you're representing equality and empowerment, how you, that could bring division, mm. if that makes sense. So. I'm going to have to get a uh, sound effect made for when I make these really professional segues. But talking of powerful voices, let's have a reading. Yeah, we'll start with uh, Clive. Okay, well, I'm just going to read two, put two poems from recent Burning Eye books. Um, the first one is, is from James Bunting's book, Conquers, which is literally just out. And although James is no longer in Bristol, um, you know, there's, there's his love of Bristol... He's, he's, he's from Bristol, and uh, uh, I first met him here, and he was, um, he was quite a, a useful collaborator in the early days of Burning Eye. He co-edited an anthology, Rhyming Thunder, which was a book of young, young poets back in 2012. It was like our second or third book. 
um, you know, and features you know people who are now sort of familiar names like Vanessa Kasude and Harry Baker and Deanna Roger and Bridget Minimal and Rob Orton, Ray Antrobus. There's loads of people in there who have like you know gone on. So they are good eyes. These guys. So I'm just going to read. It's it's a long poem. So I'm only. It's called Bones. I'm only going to read the the end bit of it because this this is the poem that's always in my head when I think of James. I remember him reading it at so many nights around Bristol. Mm. Um, I'll carry on. So this is from Bones by James Bunting. And the night is already here now. You can see it shot full of stars. So I'll walk down to the beach alone, leave behind the sound of cars and the stars reflecting the water. And my father always told me they're the moon's sons and the sun's daughters. And I don't burn as bright as them. That's just not the way I was born. So I'll flip a coin in the sand, fix up how I'm torn between staying here or going back to the city I love, where I can walk the familiar streets with demons below and angels above, and the fates can stand on every corner, fixing me with a stare. I'll just drop my eyes and walk on by, cover my ears to the distant screams and the muffled prayers. I don't have much for you, but I can promise you one thing. If you look for me on the beach, I'll show you the tide, bright and sparkling. If we look up, we'll see the clouds begin to turn, and if we wait for long enough, we'll see the horizon burn. But when you get there, if you should just find my skeleton, picked cleaner stones, you'll find a map of Bristol etched upon my bones. I'm sure you remember that as well, I Rebecca. Do. Yeah, very much is. And then the second one is from Hannah, Hannah M. Teasdale, who's a poet from Bath, um, who, and I have to read the quote here, because as Liv Talk said uh, about her book, which is called Laid Bare, so this, is, this book is a gift of emotion. It's knotty and heartbreaking and effortless. If Joni Mitchell had six kids, a bottle of Valium and a pizza in the oven, this is what she would have written. And uh, this is the opening poem. It's called Best Intentions. Your explanation for the letter, the one you wrote in those hazy days so long ago when believing you could write wrongs better, it didn't matter. You didn't grasp I was too young to understand the deeper connection that was on offer. As you found pleasure in my cold hands, we both learnt that I was never meant to be your lover. I didn't want to be caressed by a more mature, gentle touch, but lie across your kitchen table and suck your joint after I'd been fucked. I didn't want to hear you say you love me, but preferred to watch you consume my sugared lies in bite-sized pieces. You have no reason to say you're sorry. It wasn't me whose heart grew lonely. It isn't me whose tears won't dry. I think, um... Yeah, that's kind of an emblematic Hannah poem. Really. She's, yeah. she's, you know, frank and ballsy. And um, I saw her first at a, a, a slam and tried to give her such high marks in every time that I, I was judging the writing. Someone else judged the performance. Somebody else judged the audience reaction. I tried to give her such high marks for the writing that she won, but she came second. <laughs> there you go. And uh, as Adam Buxton says on his really great podcast, please insert your own bleeps. I'm not doing it. Next up, Rebecca. Okay, this is a poem called The Voice, The Sound, The Song, and it was written in response to um, Nikki Morgan's rejection to make sex and relationship education compulsory in secondary schools. And um, yeah, I was just shocked when I heard that. I think if I had had access to a little bit more education when it came to matters of sex, I probably wouldn't have got myself in half the pickles that I did. <laughs> <clears throat> the voice, the sound, the song. A congregation of girls, rattling like tambourines were once played in the back of cars. 
Detached dancehall tracks and the reek of aftershave choked while the boys sweated out some kind of love language hard to swallow. Those girls kept cotton wool in their mouths. Stuffed ears with fingers thought of themselves erupting into song but remained silent, convinced they needed someone else's tongue to make them sing. Where did he learn to roll over and welcome the moon in so quickly? while she's still wide-eyed and waiting for a crescendo to rush her skin, an orchestra of high and low notes to lift her skywards like a hymn. Where did she learn that sex was nothing but the tune of repentance, the waltz of his hands so quick to start and stop? When did the break of her heart turn into a love song writing its own end? A congregation of boys, blowing like trumpets, were once played in the back of cars. Detached dancehall tracks and the reek of perfume choked while the girls sweated out some kind of love language hard to swallow. Those boys bit their lips broken, kept their eyes glazed, thought of themselves erupting into song but remained silent, convinced they needed someone else's tongue to make them sing. Where did she learn to roll over and shut out the sun while he practiced a duet solo, a role created from online videos? Where did he learn that a maestro plays a lonely longing on the backbone of him? Voice breaks with age from counter tenor to bass, yet he still stays misunderstood. Why did he think that sex was nothing but the slow dance of her leaving? Never taught the whole note of skin. Never taught the fine tuning of fingers across flesh, the treble of pleasure, the rhythm of two equal humans moving through the scales of each other's voices. Thank you very much. And uh, now Lucy. Okay. This is the title poem from um, the 2014 uh, collection Prayer to Imperfection, published by Burning Eye. May I never be perfect, because I love mistakes and flaws in things, like the gumboots with a hole in, like the cape that went soggy in the middle, like the birthmark on the shoulder, like the three days it rained on your Devon home, the gumboots with a hole in. I only noticed they had a hole when I was halfway wading across the stream and I never would have crossed that stream unless I was wearing gumboots. The cake that went soggy. Believe me, it tasted better with that uncooked cake, chocolate chip and wooden spoon taste I hadn't tasted since I was eight. I had forgotten it could taste so good. The birthmark on the shoulder. How would I know you had a map of France on your back until you took your shirt off? And it didn't matter about the rain when we had each other to explore. Was it sorrow or was it joy? We can talk right through the night, jam and bagels in the conservatory, pink and red petunias and the spider's webs. Does your loss feel as deep as mine? May I never be perfect because I love the jumps and turns, 
the bust condom that was my youngest son, the muddled up dates that were my middle one, the what the hell I'm sure it's safe that was my eldest one. The relationship that ended and then I met a kinder man. The party I didn't go to, the interview I missed, the dress I ripped, the shoes that broke, the luggage lost, the meals spoilt, the exam I flunked, the ink ran out, the haircut horror, the bad smell date, the clingy friend, the holiday flop, my dad who died, the Down syndrome child. May I never be perfect, may I understand the wrinkles, the blots, the rips. My rocky landscape, so uncharted, so unplanned. Thank you, all of you. Now ordinarily, of course, at spoken word events, there would be a thunderous applause because we encourage noise and, you know, as Dan Cockrell would say if he was here, so we need some shakers to get a bit of mayhem going, you know. But this yeah. event is organised by me. And, uh, <laughs> it will be punctuated with awkward silences, OK? <laughs> <laughs> we can do that too. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, actually, I, I sort of wonder, because um, I haven't been doing it, this, this whole recording being that long, and my preparation notes that I give to people, I think I should include that everyone is welcome to applaud at, at the end, but I don't know, everyone, I think once you put a microphone on someone, they suddenly become a bit worried about clapping, but um, like you can insert your own bleeps, you can all insert your own applause at home. <laughs> and whoops, like and cheers. Yeah, whoop, yeah, we'll start whooping. Um, I may... Uh, yeah. There's a finger clicking thing that happens now. Yeah. 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 That's from America. That's it is. from America. It's a bit New York, yeah. isn't it? But yeah, yeah. I saw that. It's I from America. Yeah. When I lived in the States, they all. They that's all a slam like, thing, isn't yeah. it? It's America's slam thing. I'm going to get a sample of Chris Akabusi uh, whooping <laughs> and cheering. Yeah, um, if anyone's going to whoop and cheer, then I want. You want Chris? Well, I was going to say Chris Akabusi whooping at my funeral. That's sort of. Um, <laughs> back, back to the chat, right? Uh, <laughs> I wanted to talk now specifically about Christmas. So if anyone was going to come for a visit here, and in this we're going to, it's important to include Bath because it's so close and while I'm down this way, we may as well talk about it as a region without lumping the Southwest together too much, but you know, yeah. they're close enough. Um, let, uh, maybe we should just start with some tips of what to see, what's going on at the moment. Um, yeah. Any recommendations, Rebecca? And you can plug your own stuff and okay. don't feel guilty about it, that's absolutely fine. Uh, poetry Nights, Malaika does a great night called Milk. I think that's happening tomorrow, it's isn't it? It's happening tomorrow night, yeah. 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 Um, don't you lot worry about when tomorrow night is. <laughs> yeah, don't you worry about that. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and also they've got a thing at the tobacco factory. The tobacco factory is a, a theatre. I want to backtrack, a bit of history of Bristol is that you had a massive tobacco industry at one point. Um, and a lot of the big buildings and things around, around Bristol were funded by the, the, the wealth of the tobacco factory, which of course links back into Bristol's rather, rather chequered history as a, as, a, as a slave port, of course. Um, but the tobacco factory, so an old tobacco factory, as, as the name gives away, that's converted into a theatre that does a lot of community stuff and puts on some great productions. And Malika works there sometimes, and, and so every now and then they they give her the main theatre mm. to put on a bigger event. So she's got, got one of those coming this Thursday. Yeah, definitely check out Milk. I'm going to put a link mm -hmm. anyway, because Malika was <coughs> due to be a guest today, but she's unfortunately ill, so couldn't join us. But um, yeah, there'll be a link to 
than Facebook for milk, at least, because they, they do put events on different venues, don't they? Uh, yeah. In Bath, um, my students have been running a night called Rhyme and Reason. Um, they run it um, every month, actually, in the city of Bath, and that's been drawing in a lot of spoken word poets in Bath. And uh, they also run a night on the campus. I think what, what they're trying to do this year is to link up um, with the nights in Bristol as, as well and do a sort of hosting, sort of rhyme and reason hosts milk or milk hosts rhyme and reason. Oh, um, what a great idea. Oh. Yeah. Um, a student called Eliza Burmistra, is, um, she's been their intern, um, the rhyme and reason intern for the year. It was set up by um, Sam Brewer actually, okay. some years back, <coughs> and now Nick Compton's running it. And, and he's and he's very keen to sort of bring students forward and that, you know they can take it on as a sort of business venture really. Okay. That's good. Actually I think <coughs> it would be a really nice idea yeah. to have like exchange programs between yeah. spoken word nights or poetry nights yeah. around the country. It may be an idea for someone that's looking for an idea to yeah. I think it keeps the scene I think it that. keeps the scene fresh as well because mm. what can happen in a spoken word scene is that you know if you've got a night going it's always the same people that come along yeah. to that night. So, you know, it's really good to have sort of guest wow, poets. you say that actually, Lucy, but yeah. the, one of the, the, the best nights in, in Britain, long established, is called Blah, 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 yeah. which is um, curated by Anna Freeman, um, who, who many people listening to this have probably heard of or come across. Um, and it's it's usually at the Bristol Old Vic, but at the minute it's, um, the they're doing some refurbishment work at the Old Vic, so the at the Wardrobe Theatre, which is another interesting little yeah. kind of community theatre out in a, in a sort of a more ragged corner of Bristol. Um, and I went to the first one at the wardrobe last like, week, two or three weeks back now. And Anna said, oh, who here's not been to blah, blah, blah? And about three quarters of the audience hadn't been really? before. So, right. so it's really great, I thought, that by moving yeah. to a different theatre, you've got a different audience. And, mm. and, and also because they're, they're supported by, by Bristol, or yeah. they've got money to pay sort of touring. UK. They're, they're, I mean, the people on the They do, on they bring the people always, in. Always a really high standard. And um, quite a lot of spoken word nights, the bulk of it is open mic plus a guest poet, but they don't have any open mic at, at, at blah, blah, blah. No. It's just booked. It's all curated, yeah. yeah booked yeah. poets. It's a really good night. Yeah, so you've got people like, I mean, I think Luke Wright's coming in a couple of months to do his, uh, his latest show, which, you know, in a lot of us in Bristol, so, you know, getting to London to see something sometimes yeah. is prohibitively expensive. Yeah. And the last train back is so early, you have to yeah. leave halfway through. Yeah. So, you know, if any, anybody listens to this, runs a good London night and wants to kind of put an outpost on in Bristol, mm. let us know. Yeah. We'll try and help. Absolutely. There's also Hammer and Tongue, which I've been running for a few years. So I'm on a kind of break at the moment just because life got a little bit busy. Um, Hannah Teasdale's taken my place, Tommy Gillow and Tim Vosper run it. And it's every first Wednesday of every month. So it's a poetry competition and we have a guest artist who performs as well and a local artist. And it's a brilliant night. How many different versions of Hammer and Tongue are there now? I think there's six. So there's Brighton, Cambridge, Oxford, two in London and Bristol. Yeah. And yeah, so the guest artists will go on tour over a week period to all of those locations. And yeah, it's a great night. It's a lot of fun. and It's really welcoming and it's really friendly. And there is, a, there is like a mini slam, isn't, yeah. isn't there? There yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a great, it's yeah. a really great place to go and yeah. try, try your, your work out for the first time yeah. in front of an It's a good one for, yeah, like first time poets yeah. or poets who are just starting out. And I think slam poetry is a good way for people to kind of get into the world of spoken word. Yeah. I've still not been to Hammer and Tongue, either of the ones oh. in London, but I don't I very rarely cross the river. So sure. yeah. <laughs>
and they're a bit too far away from me. Um, what about opportunities for people to try longer stuff out as well? People that are looking to develop shows for festivals or, or even just scratching slightly longer ideas? What are the opportunities like there? I'm going to say something here about what I've um, been involved in setting up at Basketball University, and that's the Transnational Masters. It's, um, it's called an MRES, and it basically means that you get a master's qualification, but, but you don't have to be in college, you can, you can work from home. And, and there's a spoken word um, strand in that, and people can actually develop a, um, a sort of full-length spoken word show as part of their studies and they'll get a master's qualification at the end of it and they get a lot of support um, you know where to tour it and how to put it together so 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 that's something I'm going to plug here is, 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 is um, the MRES in transnational writing at Basketball University. Mm. Do you actually we could just chat about that Moment. Do you think there needs to be more support in advising artists about how to about the logistics of putting stuff together? Right? Totally, right, yeah. totally. I mean, I certainly. I mean, I'm um, I'm mentor and producer to to Rebecca's show. When she told me the idea for the show, I said yes, I want to be the producer for that. And and hopefully, it's it's useful to have somebody who's oh who's actually yes. done touring, who's <laughs> actually actually done touring and, and, and knows about the logistics of touring, mm. um, because I think if you are a poet going along to a local a local night and doing one 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 or two poems, you know absolutely nothing about how to put a show together, who to contact, how to apply for an arts council grant, all these things. Um, well, there's the Ferment program from Bristol Old Vic as well, yeah. and I, I know you know I've seen. I think in Vanessa did a scratch of a show. Yeah. Um, Johnny Fluffy Punk did a scratch yeah. of a show. I think Sally Jenkinson and, and Nula. What's that saying? Nula. Hone um, What was it called? The one it was, they took to. Yeah, I know. They took it to mean. Australia, so they developed here. Uh, well, Nula's Australian, so she had a connection there. But they took yeah. it to Adelaide, Adelaide Festival, okay, something right, like that. Yeah. And that was that was a beautiful show. folly. It's folly. called folly, and that, so so that, you know the Bristol Old Vic are quite good. It's not just spoken word, but across you know small small theatre production. Full stop. There's a program where you can apply, and you'll get some help and some mentoring. Mm. Um, well, because I, I suppose program. if you're going to offer that kind of mentoring, you need to involve established venues like that, don't you? Because um, yeah, even if you run a successful spoken word night yourself doesn't really teach you much often because quite often you're going to need to borrow a space so you won't yeah. learn about the cost of the space you might work out the technical details yourself so you won't know about getting in sort of qualified technicians or experienced yeah. technicians um apples and snakes as well offer yeah. off, offer advice i mean you tend to think of them as a london-based organization but they do have a branch in the southwest and, yeah, and it I tends to be a bit fun. I think people forget about it because it's in Plymouth. It's a bit yeah. remote for Bristol, so yeah. we don't really hear too much of them in Bristol. Mm -hmm. But you know, they do good work around the country. Yeah, Apple's yeah. Thanks are very good yeah. uh, resource. Um, actually, I just wanted to give a shout out to Harry Giles, who was a spoken word artist up in Edinburgh, and they, for the festival last year or the, this summer, um, published all of their accounts for the show. Do they really? really? And a complete breakdown of the costings of Great. taking something to Edinburgh. Um, actually, the last. Um, uh, feature-length podcast we put out was about transparency between artists, yeah, about the, the need for transparency in that the only way we're going to discover how much this is all costing us is yeah. if we tell each other. Right? I, 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 really, I, think, I, I think generally that's a good that. thing. 
I'm a supporter. I mean, I share my <coughs> Arts Council applications. If people are doing an Arts Council, I say, do you want to see the successful ones I've done previously? So, so that people can actually, see, you know, sometimes the wording of them, the tone and all these things, you know, you, you don't necessarily know how, how to do that. I think that transparency is really, really, really yeah. vital. I mean, for it's specifically yeah. with Edinburgh as well, I think, I mean, there's, I, I helped uh, Paul Eccentric um, uh, of, of The Anti-Poet um, publish his, his book about how, you, you know, from a standing thought, you go away, go about getting a show to Edinburgh. It's called The Edinburgh Fringe in a Nutshell. Um, and that's, that's a pretty good. It's like, it's sort of 50% anecdote, 50% memoir, anecdote plus help guide to what how to go about taking your idea and you know dragging it so does it, does it run naturally that the, the sort of um, natural community base for us uh, lend, lend itself well to or naturally to mentoring as well um, I would like to think so in, in in spoken word because it's something that has been going on you know there are spoken word artists that have been knocking around since the 70s and 80s, yeah. that, that you know, they've got an absolute wealth of expense. I mean, people like Joelle Taylor, mm. I mean, no, she was a single performing poet way back, mm. and Luke Wright, you mm. know, they, these people have been around a long time. Um, and tend to be, and you know, and I think again, maybe this is, we talked about this with the spoken word community in Bristol, but I think it's a, a, about the national spoken word thing really is that people see it as a, as a, a single entity that needs nurturing and, you know, helping along and, and so you know people like Luke will promote younger people uh, and help them with advice and stuff and I think that, that runs all the way through. Selena Gordon is, is a good mentor to, to some young poets I know as well um, you know yeah. and, and obviously you you mop up everybody else Lucy you've influenced so many people. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean to me I see it as as um, as almost the opposite to what to what the, the sort of world of published poetry can be like, which can be quite sort of closed shop. Mm. You know, if, if you are a page poet and you're trying to get a poem published, you know, that's a very long, hard route. I mean, you've done a lot um, in, in the world of poetry publishing to, you know, um, Clive, to a actually, actually put spoken word on the page. Because if you were a spoken word artist before and you were trying to get your work published, no publishing poetry publishing house would go anywhere near you. Which you know, as 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 um, you know, I was saying to to you, David, before we we started the interview earlier, is that you know, so it, it just seemed weird to me that I mean, I, I can see Lucy English's book here. It says Lucy English, Prayer to Imperfection, nineteen ninety six to twenty fourteen. Now, how many books did you have published before that, Lucy? Uh, no poetry at all. Yeah, and the same is true of Selena Gordon. You know, we kind of think of Selena Gordon as almost a household name, you know, and yet, you know, she'd been turned down by everybody, which is just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Just ridiculous. I just, just think the poetry publishing world had a blind spot about, you know, spoken word. You said the word performance, and just like, no, no, yeah. no, 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 yeah. we don't touch it. Yeah, but yeah. in their defence, I'll say that, you know, most poetry publishers work on a shoestring with a narrow focus, and some of them will tell you that, you know, their, their, their small list is booked out four or five years yeah. in advance because there's just so little capacity um, you know so I think there was just just a genuine you know gap that somebody had to step into and and um, prove that that spoke of word sales and I, I can't it's not just me I mean if you look at Don Patterson at Picador you know he, he, he had the good sense to spot that Kate Tempest could sell books as well yeah. as sell out theatres yeah. you know and, and obviously off the back of that and pending um, margins have got quite a nice crossover now yeah, well, yeah they're very interesting very interesting yeah. imprint and I think you know Tom does a really good job in, in, in he looks for people who can can put a show on the road mm. to, to go with a book 
but leans at the more experimental end yeah. of things, you know. But he works with Luke Wright, mm. you know, who's very mm. much a, mm. I would say, a spoken word. I mean, it's also important to point out since I've been sort of applying for funding and stuff and seen that side of literature, which was a complete mystery to me before, but you touched on it just then, Clive. It's very important to remember how precarious the situation is for a lot of publishers. Full and stop. They're yeah. not going to take many risks. And if, if the publishers know nothing about a genre or a, an area of, um, of an art form, it's going to be very hard to convince them. And then it does take people like Clive to just... Absolutely. If you, if you, you can't, you know, it goes back to that thing, you can't bemoan the lack yeah. of something for too long before you try and do something about it yourself. Yeah. And if you are in a position to, to do it, then um, like with uh, Matt at Nymphs and Folks, you know, yeah. he, he, he was mm-hmm. really disappointed that you can't buy spoken word as an MP3 from a lot of, from a lot of artists. So he did a great thing, got some money together and it's not possible for everyone, but... Um, I encourage my students to actually film themselves because that's where a lot of spoken word is shared these days is, is through mm. YouTube and um, and the, the spoken word, the people that do spoken word in, in my performance poetry class, quite often the only spoken word that they've seen is via YouTube. They've not been to many live performances at all. Interesting. They've yeah. only seen yeah. um, I think sort of Sarah Kay, you know, people yeah. like this. There, but films only, are really exciting area, yeah. I think, as well, though. Yeah. You know, um, I know you've done a lot of work on poetry film, but I think... I think that's something, and again, it starts with sort of like short single poems, but you know, I, mm. I could see, you know, you exploring film as a medium with some of your, you know, giving you a longer frame to, you know, work in. And also creating a legacy, I mean, um, you know, with, with all the all the journeys, which is very much about the experience of, of it, you know, that the, the, there is a case for actually having finally, how, you know, to, to, to sort of give other audiences a chance to experience it, to have a sort and of... We're both talking to Rebecca when we're saying this, so she's, she's, she probably should say something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot that's been said the past five minutes. I think, you know, Lucy has had a great impact in terms of, I came through the educational Root. My love of spoken word came through my love of hip-hop as a teenager and not a love of poetry at all. My love of poetry has grown from my love of hip-hop. I came into the world of literature through studying at university and a big part of that was you know, Lucy tutoring me on the performance poetry module. Equally, Clive has sort of paved the way in, in the world of spoken word being on the page and I think yeah, it, like you said, there comes a point where you either just sit at home moaning about the lack of representation for mm. a particular art form or whatever it is, or you do something about it. And I'm just very grateful at this point, you know, to, to be where I am and to be able to just about making a living from this because of people like these two. <laughs> so. But just on the point that Lucy raised about um, YouTube being such a do you think we should all collectively be doing a better job to document what's going on? Because yes. as, as uh, Clive was saying about um, uh, putting the retrospective out of Lucy's work, um, and then, you know, if Clive hadn't done that, then that work may have not completely disappeared. But the, the problem with spoken word nights is because, I feel like, because everyone's in the moment, mm. they sort of forget. I think that's a really interesting point because I'm actually talking to Russell Thompson at the moment from Matters and Snakes about, I mean, he wants to put together the history of UK performance poetry because Apples and Snakes have got this archive going back to the dark ages, 
you, you know, the, the very early years of spoken yeah. word poetry, which is like in the 70s. And um, and a lot of that, a lot of people that were stars then have just completely disappeared. It's it's quite an interesting scene in that it's undocumented. That, that you know, there, there, there are people who are big names in the sort of 80s and 90s and early noughties. Well, still, still, you go and try and buy a book, book by Francesca Beard. Absolutely. It doesn't absolutely. exist. And, and she's still ridiculous. doing stuff. Yeah. She's, yeah. you know, Mr. Social Control, Jen Rolls, Mob G, all, all these people, yeah. you know. Yeah. And that was an influence, I have to say, yeah. that kind of thing was an influence on me. I remember saying with some of the, the people I was speaking to earlier on when I was going to start Burning Eye, I sort of saw it in some senses that I being an archivist and so well, you know, somebody needs to catalogue this stuff because yeah. people do come in and out of the scene they and there's do. good work that just disappears gets yeah. performed mm. and, and it's influential gone. and yeah. and it's influential and loads of people see it and then those those people stop doing spoken word and they go on and do do other stuff and it disappears but, um, and it's Rebecca, in terms of your own writing practice yeah. how would you prefer your work to be documented is it is it wrong to think of the book as the default no not at all i i feel you know i think there is this sort of chasm between the world of performance and page poetry is is really quite invisible i think they are one of the same thing i think there is a beauty in being able to dissect page poetry take your time of it take it anywhere and i think Actually, there's something very magical about the moment and watching a live performance and it never existing again. Mm -hmm. In you know, obviously, you, you perform the same poems in different venues over you know however many years, but there's something very powerful about the moment. And yeah, I think that has a lot of strength as well. And that doesn't necessarily Actually, need to be yeah. a legacy. Doesn't need to be left. Mm. I think. I did actually. I didn't want to sort of. It's important actually to say that my, my intention wasn't to make a divide between page or stage poetry in that way. Because I often think even page poetry, sometimes it's wrong that it's put into a book. Like I don't, I'm questioning whether a book is the right form in the digital world for poetry at all. Um, and it, it talks briefly well, it about is, poetry. It is, and I will argue it yeah. is for one very good reason, is that, is that you know, the very existence of the physical thing is a paywall. Mm. And I think it's important that artists get paid. For, for the work they do, and too often the problem with the digital arena is that you end up giving the work away, mm. or, or you lose control of it, and so your work gets out there. I mean, you see people copying, you know, photographing pages of somebody's book and, and circulating it on on Instagram and things. And every time I think, I think, you know, ah, you know, that that poem is now out, and and, and it's and, just and, such and, a and beautiful great, thing. You know, a say, book is a beautiful yeah, thing. Yeah, I think also, I mean, what uh, I mean, what I love about seeing spoken word in, in print. <clears throat> Is being able to appreciate the crafting of it because you can go along to a spoken word night. Somebody d does a poem and it seems artless. It you know it just seems like they're just talking to you. You know you don't appreciate the craft behind it and actually seeing it. But in when you take it home with you, yeah, you read can it again. It, you read it again. And you can still hear the poet's yeah. voice in your head. Yeah. And you read it again, read it again, yeah. and and, yeah. and you know and that's what's great about it. And I think yeah. and it works. But as I say, it does. You know, uh, uh, it's hard to get paid. Sometimes you get offered a lot of gigs where maybe you just about travel. You 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 cover your travel expenses and somewhere to sleep. And well, if you sell a few books, well, suddenly you're now in, in in making a bit of money to feed yourself next week, and, you know. And, and and so a lot of what I try and do with Burning Eyes is to structure things in such a way to help people, you know, get paid for their art to live as, as artists and, and have the financial stability, maybe a little bit more financial stability, to then be able to to write more 
uh, and start to become professional writers, and I think that's part, important. Part of the reason that I directed the question towards Rebecca was because I wanted to talk about the show that you were talking about briefly earlier, and how does your view to documentation change then, then when mm. you're moving out of your, your regular, sort of, uh, mm. moving from one stage to another, perhaps, is the best way to put it. Um, quickly sidetracking, and then yeah. I, I yeah, really yeah, want course, to yeah, answer yeah, yeah. that. I work a lot with uh, teenagers in schools, primarily, and they don't really want to know about the book. I'll bring my book in and they're kind of, there's some really nice illustrations by Anna Higgy and they'll look at those and they'll kind of like, you know, not really look at the writing, but you know, I'll perform live or I'll show them YouTube videos of different performers and they're completely engaged. So mm. I just, I just wanted to say that I do think that there is, we're lucky to be able to have access to both the page and, you know, online Media oh yeah, no, absolutely agree. I'm not, not, I'm not sort yeah. of advocating for like the dismantling of one area. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's just it's sometimes a worry that people have got a too narrow a view of, of what the default way of putting work out. But yes. going back to the shop. Yeah, so lots of people have said, oh, um, do you think you could film the show? Like, is it something that, you know, we could put on camera and, and people could have access it, to it that way? And I, I keep saying no, because I, I just feel like it's something that is about intimacy, it's about connection with another individual, and that's kind of at the very heart of it, and therefore it isn't something that could be put through another medium. I'm publishing, well, Clive is publishing, should I say, um, my next collection, which has the same title as the show, because the, the writing from the show is in the book. So therefore it is being offered as something live and physical and you know raw and in the moment, but it's also being offered as something on the page. So I, I think it's a different because it's such an intimate experience, I think That's it exactly would be, what I was going to say. It, it would be very yeah. it, it would be very difficult to film it, but but there, there may be a case for actually having some 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 film versions of, of some mm. of, of some of the poems mm. just because that's you know, that, that's how work gets shared. Um, this may be slightly more of an obsession for me and not relevant to other people's practices, but do you think there's also a, perhaps a need at times to document the process of making work as well? So, you know, focusing on filming the final result, that's one thing, and that sort of plays into building an audience. But in terms of giving back to other artists and this idea of mentoring and sharing ideas, how do we document the process of building a show like that? Or do you not feel that it's we, uh, really We've been trying to do that with the Facebook site, haven't we? We've yeah, been trying to actually sort photos, of take photos of the meetings and the rehearsals and actually talking, sort of, you know, sort of documenting through through Facebook the, the process of putting it together. Yeah, interviewing people, uh, doing, you know, bits and bobs of quotes from people or, or bits and bobs from the show. and. I think it's important. I mean, social media, you know, through Facebook and Twitter as well, is a, is a, is a, is a great place to, to document. I, do, I think the reason it came up is it goes back to the idea of Harry Giles um, giving a breakdown of his costumes that yeah. Edinburgh showed you. Um, as magical as some shows can be, if you just turn up and you just see that yeah. thing and you don't know what's behind it, that's great. But it sort of sometimes devalues the amount of work that goes into putting a, sure. a show yeah. together, you yeah. know? And I think the, the process of documenting how work comes about 
raises the profile of the art form as well as the final piece. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's a delicate balance with this particular show because there's a lot of it that we don't want to reveal yeah. too much because yes, a lot yeah, of yeah. it is in the actual immersive experience. But, but I certainly think as we get further down the tour, we can be more, more, more transparent but the, about But the that. process can be reversed, can't it? The, 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 the process which, uh, of how the show grows doesn't have to be shared until afterwards, yeah. does it? You, know, you don't no. have to give away... No. You don't have to give the show, of course, you don't want to give the show away. Yeah. People won't come. It's another problem, yeah. isn't it, Clive, with sharing stuff online too much. People will just access bits and pieces rather than the whole rather show. Than the yeah, but I think, you know, I, 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 my previous negative comment about sometimes work being circulated and people not thinking about that they're circulating somebody's work without necessarily there being a, a payment structure involved. Um, you know, uh, online is a great place to build some profile and curate an audience, and there are lots of different ways of doing that. Um, YouTube is, is great, um, using other forms of social media, Instagram is one that I'm particularly interested in and I've, that I've, I've written about and experimented with myself. There's been a way of getting people's work out there. Um, and the fact that you can put little clips of films that you can play with, almost as promos, as teasers, as that kind of thing, work brilliantly. Um, it would be good if there was more you know, digital download stuff. I think that's a, another way. When I first started Burning Eye, I had these crazy ambitions that there would be, you know, uh, it would be books, it would be digital download, that you know, there, would, there would be uh, e-books and, and actually you know I've, I've narrowed in on the physical book um, in order to support as many writers as we can in that way rather than I could do half as much and spread it or I can do lots of oh, it's definitely worth in the one way pointing out that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should be doing it does it yeah, you know, no, there's exactly. a lot to be said well, for being an expert in something but there's always some one more exciting thing that you can you can do next year you know and, and we get the fuzzy felt version yeah. <laughs> I want to see that animated animated fuzzy felt poetry Animate, now we're animated talking that. Harry okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on that note because we're just aware of the time and we're running on a bit now so um we're going to take some final readings, but before that, are there any final tips for the area for people to check out or...? Check it out. So yeah. Just a place, yeah. just come. Yeah. Just yeah. Come, to Bristol, come to Bristol, come to Spoken Word Night in yeah. Bristol, really absorb that um, collaborative, we can do it yeah. sort of at, at attitude that isn't driven by commercial commercialism. It has got this, we've got this very much sort of back to basics DIY. DIY, we're DIY in Bristol. Yeah, make it happen. Get a room, make it happen. What, yeah. Whatever you do, reserve a ticket on the train because they are rammed. Yeah, <laughs> reserve a ticket on the train, yeah. Um, yeah, I, no, I, I think the final thing I'd say is, um, you know, if you're in Bristol, you know, I think that the, the poetry and spoken word scene is an important part of the local culture. You know, um, we'd love to see more people and new people always, always looking out for new voices. Um, I worry sometimes that we're a bit short of real old Bristolian um, culture coming into it. There are some good poets around Bristol who've lived here that all their lives. I'm thinking probably of someone like Deborah Harvey as being yeah. quite a high profile. And she's yeah. a stunning poet, just beautiful, beautiful work. Um, and Tangent Books published Ray Weber recently, who's like 93 years old, and, mm. and it's the first time his work's gone into print. Although I suspect he might have been able to get stuff into print earlier in his career. And he's quite, he's a really interesting character, a real old died in the wool Bristol radical, you know, and um, High on Rust is his book. And that's worth checking out as well, somebody slightly outside the spoken word area of things. So, you know, it's a, a vibrant poetry culture of Bristol that goes beyond the spoken word. But. That's great. Um, 
Yeah, we'll take some final readings. We'll start with Lucy, thank you. Okay, little, just a little bit. Uh, I, I'm not somebody who actually likes talking a lot before before a poem, but a little, little background to this. Um, I'm working on a poetry film project at the moment called The Book of Hours. Um, it's what I've been doing for my digital PhD. I'm creating 48 poetry films um, that's going to be a reimagining of a medieval book of hours. So it's going to be following the seasons and the times of day throughout the years. I'm working with filmmakers. Um, this is a poem from that collection. Um, the film was made by an amazing filmmaker called James Norton. Um, and this is called Sheltering from the Rain in a Country Church, um, uh, obviously with big reference to Larkin. I run across the graveyard much too fast and push open the weighty door. It shuts behind me with a clunk and the noise of rustling anorak and wind in my ears calms down. Replaced with whitewashed stone and carved wood, the smell of damp granite, wet floors and mould. I'm not religious. My footsteps plonk up the nave and I look around. Victorian glass, barrel roof, unrestored. I know about churches. One family holiday, it rained for two weeks non-stop and for entertainment we went to every church in Suffolk. Tiny Hopton, Grand Garbaldisham, Forgotten Harling, Empty Blythborough, where my father told us in a solemn voice, Cromwell's men shot at the painted angels to bring them down. I was 12 and uninterested. I wanted to be on my own and read Narnia books, not at my clerestory windows. This church has a rude screen. Thanks to Dad, I know what a rude screen is. It's 15th century, says the leaflet, a marvel. Pale oak, carved with leaves, untouched by Cromwell's men, because they didn't find this church, lost on a hill at the end of high bank lanes. Sweet peas by the altar, tapestry kneel rests. This church is used. A box of books, cope with crisis, 100 puddings, donations please. I read through selected psalms by David in the order for evensong. Why art thou so full of heaviness, O my soul? And why art thou so disquieted within me? The rain has stopped. I like the feel of empty quiet. I have too often chosen this instead of company. I wonder how much I have missed. I go outside and goldfinches skim across a wildflower meadow of blue campanulas and purple knapweed. Hey, I was gonna read new stuff, but I've completely changed my mind, inspired by the last conversation about Bristol. And um, I'm gonna read a poem from Talk You Around Till Dusk, which is called This City is a Garden. <clears throat> Sometimes I'd want to leave behind the way of the city. Go find silence by the edges of forests, capture nature in my pockets, etch its essence into poems. 
Sometimes I'd plant my feet on another type of ground, bending down to gather seeds I'd later scatter across streets, remembering forget-me-nots might grow next to the overflow of bins, trying to let some light in through the dirt of it all. But sometimes there comes a moment when you just need to let go and see the city is a garden. Come discover my heart grow here. There was never any need to leave, find life outside of it. We are a riverbed of roads, streams of traffic leading us further into the unknown. And I never wanted to be sure, you know. We are here now, between the flats that grow on mass like weeds, buzzing with a thousand species inside and the derelict buildings where silence and solitude hide behind a forest of shops were getting lost between carrier bags and street signs. We are stood still now, in this landscape, fingers entwined in the stomach of this city, surrounded by wild flowers, people who just grow where they're told. Like the Colombian orchids, who sip spice rum in dimly lit bars at the same time Iranian roses gather where the English ones are. On the corners where St. Paul's and Stokescroft collide, two types told they could never grow side by side, becoming one. At night, Spanish tulips perform songs to Cornish daffodils, heads bent back singing soulfully sweet southern sounds as Egyptian lotus curl open with sunrise, all wide-eyed new mornings, days dawning, and the Syrian jasmine traces pictures on his back of flat-packed furniture and the outline of their home. We are small flowers cracking concrete. We are signals of survival surprising us all every time we think we couldn't get any further than before. Faces searching for the sun specks, roots crawling under floorboards. Sometimes I'd want to leave behind the way of the city. Go find silence by the edges of forests, capture nature in my pockets, etch its essence into poems. But the breath of fresh air starts here, home, and we are rooted between the houses. The beauty searched for found in the wrinkles of our two elderly neighbours, their skin like cyclical rings in oak trees. And the growing we long for seen in how many decades they have held one another's hearts and the sweet smell, it's her perfume, or fake lilacs and violets and him and his cigars. There is peace. In the sometimes we leave it all behind and stay as we are. There is peace. In the sometimes when we recognize just here in this garden, the beauty is of a different kind. Fantastic. Okay, um, I'm going to read, I'm sneakily read two, okay. The first one is um, by Steph Moe. Steph Moe is the poetry version of the novelist Stephen Mohammed, whose books uh, Bitter Sixteen and Ace of Spiders are published by Salt and worth checking out. So this poem is called Small Talk and it's taken from uh, Steph Moe's collection Panic, which was uh, out earlier this year by Burning Eye, of course. Um, I wish things weren't so awkward. We faced apocalypses together, stood shoulder to bleeding shoulder, backs to blooded wall, facing down howling hordes, armed with nothing but bruised fists, shit-eating grins and camaraderie. Yet, sit us here together in the same living room with an afternoon to kill, and it's like a first date between two people who are only doing it because 
they share some really pushy mutual friends. I spend too much time fiddling with tea and coffee making paraphernalia, and you keep sort of but not really reading an old Guardian culture section, and small talk chokes and chugs like an old machine. And I watch dying cells dive off my arm like the last hurrah of some suicide cult, and I still can't remember if you take sugar. So we just end up sitting. And if anyone asked, I know we'd both swear the silence is companionable, although we both know it really, really isn't. And I don't think I've ever been more relieved to see a grenade hurtling through an open window. God, I think I was actually just about to ask you something about football. And then um, to finish, I think um, there's a poem I wrote about Bristol very, very long time ago, and I'll, I'll try and remember it. Um, and then if I don't and I fumble it, um, you can cut it. Absolutely, yeah. So, well, um, we all have faith in you, so. Yeah, we believe excellent. in you. Okay. There's um, free range eggs laid the day you left are still fresh, but it hasn't stopped raining. Joggers knee deep on the downs and the suspension bridges sinking. Drivers have gone crazy with headless motor madness. It's April and they're obsessed. It's like a water festival out there, but the nights are as hot as high summer. The midget directing corpses by the BRI has a fine new beard, but the palm trees look real sad. And that slim young thing in the white bikini borrowed Brunel's clothes, left him standing bare with a traffic cone on his union flagpole. So you can coop on down and get your hair off. She's got it about her tonight. And Jacob's balloon is lost in the mist. I don't think he'll ever come down, but float on and on until he thinks the city is long gone. And then he'll find himself Tuesday morning. 4am with just the finest view of the sunrise. Thank you very much. I think we should do a round of applause. Oh,